Welcome to another episode with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and the entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore in the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. Susan Finch here. I'm the producer for Market Dominance, guys, and I was invited by Chris Beal to join him on today's episode. Chris, what are we going to talk about? Well, let's talk about something we've never talked about, which in 70 episodes or whatever is a little bit hard to find, but this has turned out to be easy to find. So I've been doing some radio advertising recently. And we've been doing uh, a lot more work with what we call talk to send, which is sending an email after each conversation and talk to sequence and talk to cadence or whatever people call these things, you know, in case it's not just an email, it might be triggering a sequence. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about how does a conversation first approach work with all of the other media, all the other ways of of having information flow between you and your prospects. I thought that might be kind of fun. It is. It's dizzying, though. And new players and new shiny things, as you brought up Clubhouse earlier today, are coming into our spectrum of time sucks. And we don't know whether they're effective or not. We don't know whether playing over there, hanging there, or investing time over there is really worth the time. So, and how do we measure it all? Yeah, there you go. So I think measuring it is really, really, really hard. Um, but I think there's a principle we can apply that's really simple. There's only two kinds of communication we can have with somebody. One is communication with somebody we have no relationship with. And the other is communication with somebody we have a relationship with. As I often say, and I'm sometimes you know, derided for, that's just math. Right. In fact, it's a branch of math called logic, which is uh, not that popular here in our country. But every once in a while, somebody takes it up for a few minutes and they get some good out of it. So it's just two possibilities. And what's so interesting to me is that when you divide the world of communication with prospects and customers into those two categories instead of into other categories, uh, you find something out really quickly. You may not get it at first, most of us don't, but it works like this. All communication of a digital form with somebody we don't have a relationship with is open loop and doesn't produce trust. And that's really interesting because in the world of business to business, we only get information back when it's closed loop. So say I send you an email. Say you retired from your company five months ago, but your company keeps your email alive so that they can make sure that should somebody send an email to you, a very important senior vice president of whatever, that that email gets proper attention. It will come back to me as you open that email. That's that's because email is fundamentally open loop. And even if I put little tricksy things in it, like little pixels or pixies or whatever they happen to be that are gonna 
you know, they're going to notice and they're going to send something back and say, oh, they opened it. Or even if I'm looking at bounce rates, you know, in both cases, it's not going to bounce and, and the pixies and the pixels and all that are going to say it was opened. And then what will happen? Well, say you're a, a data seller, like, I don't know, Zoom Info, you're going to report to the world that this person works at this company still, even though they left five months ago. And in fact, there's a great mystery among the data sellers and people who buy data and actually use it, like we do and our customers do to call people, talk to people. It's like, huh, why are there so many retired people in this data set? And it's because email is open loop. It sometimes tries to be closed loop. People put fancy things in it, try to make it closed loop, but it's open loop. And so we can't really trust the information that comes back. And then the other part is, it doesn't matter if it's email, if it's social, if it's whatever, billboards, which are actually kind of uh, analog digital media open loop, we can't build trust through digital communications alone. There's not enough data. And everybody thinks there's enough data. It's like, well, it's digital. It must have more data. But there's almost no data in a digital communication that gets through. Maybe a picture quickly forgotten. You remind me of somebody that I respect a lot, Linda Zimmer, and she is into data security and security and speaks on it throughout the world. But she always reminds me that data is not truth, but it is sold as truth. Oh, yes. Yes. And it oddly enough to get to truth takes a lot more data than the amount of data that tends to be sold as truth. That is it, it the data that's, important for building trust is data that speaks to parts of ourselves we're not aware of. That's why they're called unconscious and subconscious parts of the mind. Those aren't just like fancy names for, oh, you know, Sigmund Freud wanted to say something. Although Sigmund Freud was kind of a weird guy, wanted to say some things, right? Not all of which were that savory, but it's just kind of simple, which is there are things that go on inside of our noggins and our bodies that we're not aware of that are really important when it comes to us making decisions. And in fact, when we make the big decision, the biggest decision we ever make, do I trust this person? That's the biggest decision because when we screw it up and we get it wrong, it can be fatal. So here we have this really big decision, a blood decision, and we make it based on lots of data, lots of information actually, going into our unconscious and subconscious parts of our brains and our bodies. And that data, that information just isn't available in digital media. We just can't get there from here. Email, 5,000 bits roughly in an email. Conversation, 20,000 bits in one second of a conversation. One second, it's four emails. So now we're into a world where, well, how many seconds does it take to get trust? Chris Voss, FBI's hostage negotiator for many years, I think the world's foremost expert on getting trust in a sales conversation. I asked him once, how long do we have to get trust in a cold call? And a cold call is just a name for an initial voice interaction. We haven't spoken before. And I'm the ambusher. So I'm the ambusher. How long do I have to get trust from you? And he just looked me in the eye and said, seven seconds. And when I playfully said, really, our research says eight seconds, he said, your research is wrong. It's seven seconds. At which point, 
I was pretty sure that his research was research and mine wasn't. And, you know, I, I asked him, what do we have to do in those seven seconds? And he says, oh, that's easy. All we have to do is demonstrate to this person that we see the world through their eyes and show them that we're competent to solve a problem they have right now. I said, well, that's a lot to do in seven seconds. You guys have talked uh, about this a lot, the seven second rule and how long and what has to be packed into that time. And I play through in my head, so many people that do not, that are not customers of Connect and Sell and some of your reputable competitors. But what I see is four of those seconds gets wasted as that transfer happens that, hello, hello, hello. And the seconds tick away and you're almost done before you yeah. even heard a voice. And yeah. what a waste. Exactly. And then when you, yes, the time goes by. And then, by the way, most reps just waste the time that they have. So they say, so, uh, Susan, how are you today? And it's like, okay. So now you talk for six or seven seconds and we're done. And, and that's not enough to get the job done because we didn't show the person that we see the world through their eyes. Hi, how are you today is not seeing the world through their eyes. Did I catch you at a bad time? It's a little bit closer because you referred to a bad time and it is a bad time because it's always a bad time, but they did answer the phone. So it was probably a good time actually for a conversation, just not with you. It, my time is so precious that how much time do I want to allot to something unexpected, a stranger or an annoyance in general? Because we might even know the annoyance yes. and they may have called us before. And how much time are we willing to devote to that to actually pick up the phone? My time's super precious. I won't do that many yeah. times. And what you will do in general is you'll trade a little certainty. I'm off this call in 27 seconds, thank God, in exchange for a little courtesy. Yeah, I'll listen to why you called. That, that exchange is very, very easy to sell. That's one of the easiest sells in the world. I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? And if I say that, you might decide that your self-image is so uh, robust that you're just going to say no. Or you might decide you're so afraid of me or afraid of your own tendency to go along with what people say to you that you will say, mm, no, not right now. I'm busy, which is kind of silly because you did answer the phone. You aren't that busy. Right? You were expecting something that was going to take, oh, maybe 27 seconds. But for the most part, people will chuckle and go, sure, go ahead. And the reason they chuckle is that people chuckle when and they laugh when their fear is relieved. That's how jokes work. Jokes make us nervous about a particular way it could go. And then when it goes another way, that thing called the punchline, we're relieved and we laugh. Laughter is a way of expressing relief in the departure of fear. So when we get called, we're afraid. Why are we afraid? An invisible stranger just ambushed us. That's pretty scary. And how do we express our fear? Uh, annoyance and desire to get out of the room, so to speak. But what is our constraint? Oh, darn. It's an interaction with another human being. And if I treat them too badly, my own self-image will be harmed. I'll hurt myself. So I don't want to do that. So I'm a little bit stuck. Oh, you're so kind. You offer me a way out. I know I'm an interruption. I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called, said playfully, and sounds like a deal. 
Now, what's funny about this is right there, you've accomplished the purpose of a cold call. You're done. You have trust. Oddly enough, fear is a great foundation for building trust. Because by relieving fear, you always build trust. Not sometimes, but always. And if you just left it at that, and you didn't actually fulfill the 27-second promise, then you'd have trust that got eroded because you didn't fulfill your promise. But if you fulfill your promise and tell them why you called, and then let them go if they want to go, they'll trust you. And you can talk to them again. However, and this is the big point, then you can also send them an email. Then you can send them an email, which they will open and read because you can say in the subject line of the email, thanks for our conversation just now. And that's a completely different email because it's within a trust relationship that actually exists and is very fresh. And so when you look at digital media and podcasts are like this too, by the way, somebody might be amused by by us and our podcast, right? They might learn something. Sometimes they'll reach out to me and say, this changed my life. I'm getting a fair amount of that, but they actually won't quite trust us yet. Not Corey, not me, but if we have a conversation with them. So say I have a conversation with somebody, I had a conversation with a very senior sales enablement head from 3M today. And by the end of that conversation, which was longer than 27 seconds, it was actually 17 minutes and 38 seconds, I could send this person an email and this person is going to open that email and actually read it and probably reply to it and say, thank you for the information you provided, blah, blah, blah. And here's how I'd like to proceed or something like that, right? That same person, a cold email would have gone right over into the cold email trash pile where cold emails go. And I'd have to then resort to a clever subject line. Oh, did alligators eat your toenails or some nonsense like that, which people do in, you know, in hopes of raising themselves up above the sea of noise called email. Not, but it's not really a sea of noise. It's trusted email from people I know. You sent me a housewarming gift to Helen and I via email. I didn't see it because it was in a sea of untrusted email and somehow it just slipped by me. But when you reminded me of it, I went right over there and opened it, forwarded it to my fiance, and voila, you know, we're grateful, we're happy to have a housewarming gift. Thank you so very much. We really do love our new house. And all that is good, right? Had you just been some stranger sending me a housewarming gift? First of all, it would have been weird. <laughs> Secondly, I would have been suspicious of it. As like, what are you trying to sell me? And thirdly, I missed this one. I would have missed that one forever. Well, you definitely wouldn't trust the click. I wouldn't trust the click. And you you wouldn't be able to know. No, but you- You wouldn't know what had happened to it. But you're coming back to something with that subject that you said about the alligators. With the piece that you brought up earlier about a joke and a punchline. There is a piece to building these relationships and maybe it's just me because I appreciate a good sense of humor, but I find when people have a good sense of humor and know how to fine tune, it's why this is not really dumb. This is why I like talking to GoDaddy for a hosting company, as opposed to some of the other competitors of theirs, because it's so sexist. The guys answer, the guys have a sense of humor. The guys get any humor I have. And there's a rapport immediately because you get yeah. me, you find me funny. And if you find me funny, I'm probably going to hang out with you a little bit more and trust you more, especially when I have a stupid joke to say. 
And I want to talk a little bit, I know those 27 seconds are so valuable, but even from that moment and in that little space, there are ways to drop those disarming pieces of humor, of relatability, of vulnerability. How important is that? I think it's crucially important in discovery. Crucially important. I think it's also crucially important in your voice when somebody accepts your 27 seconds. Because you can set, you can actually just chuckle along with them. You don't have to say anything about it. It's just funny. I mean, can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? It's kind of funny. Listen to James Thornburg say it sometime out there on his many, many, many LinkedIn videos that he makes of himself cold calling using that opener. And you look at his face and he's ready for humor, for action, right? But for humor action, for humorous interaction. I think humor when when shared is that's the first dish we share with somebody that shows that we trust them. We'll find we'll find what they said that is intended to be funny, funny. That's like trust. That's why comedians make a lot of money because they can stand up on stage with an audience that doesn't trust them to start with. That's why they're heckled also is to test their, their uh, ability to punch all the way through to the other side and get to the trust regime. And it's why when they, when they bomb, they call it dying. I died up there on stage. And I don't know if you've ever done stand up. You know, all of us who've done classroom teaching have done lots and lots of stand up. Oh, I've yeah. spent thousands of hours in stand up, right? And you know, the number one rule is until the class laughs with you and laughs at you a little bit, mm-hmm. you're just not there. You're just not there. But once they do, you're probably pretty good, you know? And um, so it's, it's also true of that follow-up email. Yeah. So self-deprecating humor in a cold email is incredibly dangerous. You actually don't even know who you're making fun of, them, you, somebody else. It's very dangerous. But in a follow-up email, it's really easy. You know, you, it's really easy. You can say, oh, about that conversation we had today, you know, ambushed again, you know, and I know it was awkward. Ambushed again is kind of funny. It's like people don't think of ambush. An unexpected word makes you nervous. The punchline is it was really something that they understand. There's a million ways to, to tell a joke, right? One word, two words, many words, no words. But in a trust relationship, the joke is understood or attempted to be understood. People will laugh at your jokes when they trust you, even if they don't get the joke. I agree. We were just having this conversation in our house last night. My daughter's pledging a sorority and they want her in the sorority because they think she's hilarious. Well, the other three of us in the house that are funnier than she is disagreed, which which (laughs) she she didn't appreciate it. We all agreed who is the funniest and it's our it's my son but she said you don't understand i'm really funny i said you don't understand my friends think i'm the funniest person they know and i tell them they need to up their game with their friends then if i'm as good as they have they need somebody better i'll make some intros well at least she's funny enough she is and and actually this brings up another point it's a point i call above threshold we haven't really talked about it on market dominance guys Once you're above threshold within some element of a relationship that's sufficient to allow you to advance the relationship, then it doesn't make sense to keep pushing that particular dimension of the relationship. 
And this is the, the classic failure mode of all salespeople. It's called selling after the close. But most people think the close is when the deal is signed. That's actually not the close. The first close is, did they, did they chuckle at your 27 seconds? The second close is, did they actually listen to you when you said the next part? Really listen. The third is, did they come back and say something to you? Right now you've got three, you've had three closes. The fourth is, did they agree to take the meeting or did they tell you the truth about their situation? Now in an ambush, nobody will really tell you quite the truth. They, there are very few people with the aplomb to do that. It just is, is tough, right? So, I mean, in sales, we're always doing these little tiny closes. And what a close means is that's done. It's okay to, to move on. That's actually what it means. That's done. And people who can't close have an emotional issue concerning their confidence in the relationships they build. So a closer, such as say, oh, myself, and I'm a pretty well-known closer, right? Not a deal closer. I do close deals, but that's not what, what's interesting. It's like once we get to point X, if I think we're there and you act like we're there, we're there and we're moving on. Right? This is why I can propose to somebody two days after meeting them, which happened in the case of this particular fiance and me, and, and why I can be confident doing it because we were there and it was okay for me to say it. And then I didn't have to keep going back and saying it. There are like three things that I said, I'm not going to repeat them here, but they were really important. And then we could move on to the next part, which was me going back to my hotel. So it's, a, it's really fascinating. When you watch great salespeople, they will close 30, 40 times in a discovery conversation in little tiny ways. Yes. And it's because having built trust, it's okay to risk the relationship by moving forward. As long as you have reasonable confidence that you'll be told that you're being inappropriate, which happened by moving forward. And somebody says, hang on a second. And that's great. You go, okay, wait a minute. We weren't really close, but that's called a false positive on the close. You got the false positive. It wasn't actually an okay situation to close in, but you have enough trust that the other person is going to catch the false positive and they're going to give it back to you as information. And this is what you can't do in digital media. You can't catch the failure to close. In fact, you can't detect the micro close. It's not there. Where am I going to detect it? Between the first sentence, second sentence, third sentence of the email? I don't know what's going on in you. But if I see you and hear you, and then you trust me enough to tell me when I screwed up, then we can collaborate and move forward. And this is the essence of all sales. People who learn it have fun and make a lot of money. And people who don't learn it drive the rest of us crazy. And they make their family crazy like, and their I friends don't. crazy. They make everybody crazy because it, <laughs> yes. it carries through. If you don't see where you have been given permission and encouragement to go to the next thing and you can't recognize that and you do stay stuck in those same, you've met the people at parties. They say the same stories every time. When you see them at the same party, they're telling the same stories every time. And they never are able to move on or out of the past or out of the college days or out of you know the one time they met a celebrity you know 55 years ago they're still talking about that because nothing's come up since or they haven't learned how to move it forward it's embarrassing yes or they don't have the 
or they don't have the confidence. Because there's a funny thing what we do when we're closing, and it's a really, really awkward thing. It's the hardest thing in the world. We're potentially sacrificing the relationship for the collaboration. As a pure socializer, and some people are pure socializers, were I a pure socializer and all I valued was the relationship, I could never get a deal. Because I have to come to a point of saying, but the purpose of these conversations was to collaborate on doing something together that we can't do alone, that we can't do separately. So I have to take the risk of sacrificing the relationship and trust you that you are going to catch me when I fall and I move too fast. And that's where the trust ends up being a two-way street. You have to trust me to have your best interests at heart. And you have to believe that I know more than you do about what it is that we're trying to do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have ambushed you. You would have ambushed me. I have to trust you to correct me when I'm moving too soon in a deal, too soon to the next step of collaboration, whatever it turns out to be. And that's the trust that the non-closer, the socializer never has. They don't trust the other person to keep them from blowing the relationship up. So they stick on this point and just keep hammering it. It's like my husband on his computer when it's not doing what he wants, he just keeps clicking. It's like, stop, stop it. It can't even catch up yeah. to what you're doing to move on and do the next thing because you keep clicking. Stop clicking. Oh, it's that's a good one. It's the same thing. <laughs> It's the same thing. And of course, it is really hard, hard to trust technology. But point of all this is, look, there's an easy way and a hard way. The easy way is also the most awkward way, which is you have to ambush somebody because it puts them in a state where you can build trust quickly in seven seconds. And therefore, you have a foundation for all future interactions, verbal, digital, billboard put outside their office sending them a note in the mail, offering them a gift, all that stuff within a trust relationship is actually trivially easy to do well and kind of hard to blow. And so if you do the awkward thing, that's awkward. It's really awkward to throw yourself under the bus. It's really awkward to say, I'm a bad thing, but you must because you are. I have actually, you've ambushed them, you're bad, right? So just own up to it right now. It's really awkward to do it fast enough. I, I know I'm an interruption, not, so I'm so glad that I caught you. Now I'll be brief. I know I'm an interruption. It's like, boom, done, dead, boom, dead, right? Just but that phrase, if you I'm do so it, glad I caught you. I feel like a prisoner already. I, I caught you, yes. Like Did a tiger by the tail just time? on. You didn't catch me at all. Right. You, didn't, you haven't caught me. What are you talking about? You know, but if you tell me you know I'm an, that you're an interruption, I hear the bus go over you like this, the thump, the thump, the thump. <laughs> and I'm good. I don't have to back the bus up. I don't need six more thumps. The thump, the thump, the thump, the thump, the thump, the thump. I'm good. Thank goodness. Thank goodness you ran yourself over. Now, if you fake it, if you say, I know I'm a bit of an interruption, that means I didn't really mean it. I got near the bus. And when you couldn't see, I pretended I was run over by the bus, but actually I just squealed and jumped back. And now I'm just another faker in the world. And you're not going to trust me. And so it's a subtle business. This is, a, this is very subtle. But if you're willing to do it, digital media open up, including advertising. Interestingly enough, it's a delight to see an ad 
for a company where you just talk to somebody that you now trust about what they do. That's fun. Oh, look, I just saw their ad. I just talked to that guy this morning, that gal this morning. That's really interesting. What a coincidence. So suddenly retargeting is different. I talk to you. I can retarget everybody around you, including you. And most of them, it just goes, eh, whatever. But somebody might say, have you seen that ad? It's like, yeah, I talked to those people yesterday. You know, it was really actually kind of an interesting conversation. Boom, everything's different. Same with social outreach. I reach out to you on LinkedIn after talking with you. Thanks for taking time to talk with me today. I know we didn't have a lot of time, and I guarantee you I will never pitch you on anything on LinkedIn. That would be an exception to the current rule, which is everybody pitches everybody all the time. because they... We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible Whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. Clubhouse is fascinating. I think Clubhouse is the most interesting thing going on in the world today because it's basically this social media where you can't be rude. And you, and you can't be recorded and you, you can't, can't be reshared. People figure it out how yeah. to, but for the most part, yeah. And yeah. the bios, have you seen the bios and what people do in there? Their bios are about nine inches high and it's filled with... <laughs> Every keyword, phrase, offer, pitch, discount, every possible link, way to find it with emojis and little this and little that. It's the most decorated. It would make somebody who builds professional resumes just cringe because it looks like a four-year-old had a party with emojis and just blasted them all over anything credible about you. It's like a four-year-old had a party with emojis that were served as sushi and they got sick. And threw them up all over that thing. I mean, it's like, it's like emoji vomit. It really is. So it's an interesting thing. And I find myself attracted to the smaller rooms because I like deeper conversations. I like collaborative conversations rather yeah. than the grandstanding from the larger rooms and the bigger names where they're pontificating on stuff that I've already heard them say everywhere else. So it is an interesting, it is an interesting venue but I do agree with you. My experience so far has been, it's been a very gracious, kind venue at this point. And it will stay that way. And it'll stay that way because we actually don't have mechanisms in us that allow us to be rude with our voice when we have been identified, especially to a group. That's why panel discussions are such, frankly, pablum. When I'm invited to be on a panel, I always say, you realize I'm actually going to speak my mind. <laughs> yeah, that happens to me too. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not, not going to be mean to anybody. I'm just going to act like they're not there. But I will recognize them and say, like they said, I'm actually going to be much more polite to the panelists than I, if they're up on the panel with me. Then, I don't know, if we were just having a private conversation right. at a bar. Why? Because I don't want to embarrass them and I don't want to embarrass myself. And so we're just, we're built to be polite in voice conversations, especially in groups. We and just are. And you're not because you're just not capable of it. You get kicked out or muted. So it's okay. 
Exactly, exactly. It's got the appropriate controls in the appropriate hands. I think Clubhouse is fascinating and it tells us two things. I think one, text-based communication or pictures, unsolicited, whatever, tends to be noisy because it's cheap to do, cheap to, to reproduce, cheap to copy, and therefore everybody does it for you know nothing. And it's not working so well. And it's actually even worse with work from home where you're already agitated about you know your kids, your, your dog. I love your dog, but your dog, whatever, right? And then on the other side, this video thing is oddly wearing. And people are trying to figure out it's wearing enough that it has a name, Zoom fatigue. Right? And here's this little slice that's actually the biggest field of all, which is the human voice, the thing that speaks to our insides, that it borders on song, that lets us sing to the other person. Now, somebody once said to me after I came out of a board meeting, and it was funny, it was one of my uh, direct reports who was invited to the board meeting. He said, what did you do in there? I said, what do you mean? He says, you sang to that board of directors. It was done with the voice. It was done with the tone. It was done with the, with the cadence and the notes. And they gave you $3 million. <laughs> and I said, well, singers make a lot of money. Yep. They do. If you're that's why rock star means something, man. It means something. And the human voice has got this amazing, deep, ancient range. Like we just discovered by analysis of the skulls of Neanderthals that they heard the same way that our ancestors and we hear, including being able to distinguish certain sounds. The sound t from sh, from s, from k is really, really hard for most animals to distinguish because of the way their ears and their, their skulls are constructed. Right. But here we have these two branches and you know, we have the Denisovians, we have all these other branches of our family tree that we're finding. And language goes back at least that far because that's what that difficult to attain bunch of you know, shaped bones allow us to do is to make these distinct these distinctions that are peculiar to language and not very relevant in the worlds of natural sounds you don't really need to tell a t from a k from a sh from a s out there in the woods but you better be able to tell the difference between sit and <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> Oh, man, you did a post of a couple of weeks ago where we were participating in one about spontaneous phone calls and people picking up the phone and being irritated by people that actually call and don't set an appointment to make a phone call first. And what has been lost so much in communication, and I think you know, we just talked about it with Clubhouse and the value of conversation and the gifts that you get from that, that you can't get from data, that you can't get from email, from other things, because there is no replacement for a conversation. And the time that it saves to have a 30 second conversation as opposed to 15 emails to say the same thing. Or to fail to say the same thing. Yes. That's really what the issue comes down to is, I read these email threads, go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And Asked, okay, so what is the, this the equivalent of in a conversation? And normally it's 30 seconds in which there are five interactions, two of which are corrective, one of which is expansive, 
and one of which makes a fine distinction that needed to be made in order to get to where you got to go. <laughs> that's what we do with each other. We correct each other. No, no, that's not what I meant. When Imagine that in an email. No, that's not what I meant. Oh, now you're insulting me. Right. Whereas in a live conversation, that's polite. It's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And uh, there's a big difference between no in an email and no, 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 that's not what I meant. No, no, no means I'm trying to help you now. Right. I'm working with you. Right. They're totally different concepts. Even though one of them has three no's, it has a lot less no in it than one no in an email. So this stuff's magic. And to abandon the magic in favor of cheap reproduction and absentee landlordism, I don't want to be there. I don't want to have to actually, you know, like do the dishes. I just want somebody else to take care of everything. So you take care of delivering it. They'll take care of reading it. I don't have to do anything. And I'm going to go write another one. No, I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to use a template. I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to have a sequence. I mean, I'm my sequence no more than I do. In fact, somebody has A-B tested every sequence in the world. Really? How many would that be? Well, do the math. There's more interesting sequences of emails you could send than there are, oh, atoms in the universe, it turns out. So I don't think they've all been tested. Pretty sure. But everything in conversation has been tested. It's been tested over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. It's all been tested. When I say it's all been tested, I'm saying something very different from it's all been tested. Those are very different things because that's been tested. Correct. And when I think back, you were just covering that. How many emails are always restating something, finding something, telling somebody where to find it, where you already told them where to find it, where to look for it? I can't think of three conversations in the past month that I've had to have it corrective. Yeah. And definitely not on video. I haven't had to backtrack on anything. And if I do, it was so not memorable because it was so minor and quickly resolved. It doesn't stick in my head. Exactly. Exactly. And we do because we're urged on the inside to do the correction in real time. Yes. It's a closing. Every correction is a little mini closing. And, and we, we do them all the time. We do. We have catchphrases for them. We all know how to do it, right? Well, actually, what I was trying to say, right? We say that. That's a known phrase. I can go look it up on Google. Actually, what I was trying to say, but if I looked it up on Google, I find a little bit. But if I looked it up in the transcripts of every conversation, if I had them all that have been had in the last day, I'd find 100 million. Actually, what I was trying to say, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, now that I think of it, it seems to me, huh? Ooh, that just reminded me. That's another that just one. just reminded me. Well, at the end of the day, you know, we oh, have these phrases. No, not that. that. Anything but that. That's a bad one, right? But yes. these phrases, even the, the overused ones, they're ways of saying, this isn't going exactly as I expect it to or I understand it at this right. point. We need to back up a little bit. Let's back up. Let's slow down. Let's get this right before we go to the next thing. And let's do it without any rancor because we need the relationship. So we're just about to break the relationship through a misunderstanding. Let's not do that. Let's let it be a little rubber band. 
We'll snap it back gently, and then we'll fix it up, get on the same page. How funny that the one thing we can't do with text is get on the same page. No. <laughs> In a conversation, we get on the same page easily. We had to make sure we got on the same page. So we got off the email where the pages were, and we went to the conversation where there's no pages. Oh, I think no. that's a church reference, by the way. That's referring to singing the same hymn as everybody else. Get on the same page, you know, because right. everybody did that. It was a community activity where you needed to be on this, or people still or do it, I suppose. I, yes, exactly. So let's get on the same page. This stuff to me is fascinating. And what's really fascinating is the entire innovation economy depends utterly on it being mastered by salespeople. Yes. We have nothing. We have nothing in terms of our ability to move forward unless salespeople master all of this stuff, which thank goodness they mastered 98% of it just by being humans and learning to speak. So I think this is a great place to wrap up this episode. I love it. Let's do it. All right. Oh, 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 we're closing, everybody. We're closing. We're moving on. <laughs> we're going to wrap up this episode of Market Dominance, guys. And I'm acting like I'm the host. I don't know who. We don't know who the host was today. We just know we were on it together. We had a great conversation. And you can find out more at marketdominanceguys.com. You can also find this show in any podcast venue that you favor. And you can check Chris Beal out. He's over on Clubhouse. Look for it when he's there. Set up those alerts. Follow him so you know when he's participating in something. You may want to hear some bonus materials or give him one of your burning questions and let him answer it. Maybe he'll have one for you. We will talk to you all soon. Thank you so much. I'm Susan Finch. I'm the producer of Market Dominance, guys, with the esteemed Chris Beal. Chris, thank you for having me on. Delighted as always, Susan. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Mm -hmm.